Hi, and welcome to the first of several episodes of the Title Block Live. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and over the next several weeks, I'll be hosting a weekly informal get-together on YouTube to answer your pressing questions about design from all quadrants. Last week, we recorded our first session on lighting design with panel members Kevin Fraser, Kimberly Patel, Kevin Lamott, Louise Guinan, Bonnie Beecher, Michael Walton, and with co-host Connor Moore. Join us every week, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, on the Title Block Podcast's YouTube channel for a new live discussion about theatre design in Canada. On Thursday, April 23rd, join a group of wonderful Canadian set designers, including Sean Kerwin, Sue LePage, Lorenzo Savuini, Ken McDonald, Pat Flood, and Ken McKenzie, and a few more to answer your questions about set design. Now, here's our first discussion from last Thursday. So we're not talking this about like, and butthead anymore. This is plan. No, this is plan hold, hold W that. for me right now. And I just learned how to Zoom broadcast from Zoom to YouTube Live in like three minutes. So just give me a second. All right, you're ready for open heart surgery. Uh, but, oh God, no. To have some, yes, I would like some open <laughs> heart surgery. Could you please do that for me right now? Uh, okay, now I'm going to go to uh, Connor. Do you want to get things started? I'm going to go and uh, drop the link to this in Facebook and in Twitter, uh, so people will have it. And uh, and I will say welcome to Nintendo <laughs> Block Live, and welcome to all the fabulous designers. Connor will introduce everybody, and I will uh, rejoin the conversation in just a second. Sure thing. Uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Um, I'll introduce the designers uh, in the order that I sort of see them on my screen. And if you just want to say a little bit about yourself, that would be wonderful. So starting with Kevin Lamott. Connor, just before, I got a screenshot, and it's just a lighting plot of the YouTube, the new YouTube link. So we might not be live just yet. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm getting updates from Simon Rossiter telling me if we're live. Perfect. Oh, the third to... link is the charm. So it seems like we are, <laughs> we are live. Okay, okay good. perfect. <laughs> Great. Um, um, Connor, are you bailing on those bios? We'll just say our own thing. Yeah. I don't think I have all the bios in front of me. So, uh, read I what said you hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, hi, I'm Michael Walton. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, that's good. Sorry, no, that's... I'm Kevin Lamont. Um, 56 years old, born in Leamington, <laughs> Ontario. I now reside in Niagara on the Lake, Ontario. I'm the director of lighting design for the Shaw Festival, and um, and I've done lots of other lighting design around the country and elsewhere. In uh, I don't know, 30 some years. Kevin, me. L, Kevin L, because Kevin <laughs> F is here as well. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Kevin L, and I'll move right on to Kevin Frazier. Yes, we're in grade six. We're Kevin F and Kevin L now. <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, I've been doing this about the same length of time as Kevin Lamott. I'm from Toronto, but I live in Stratford. Um, I did 30 years at the Stratford Festival and a bunch of other things as well, mostly in Canada. Awesome. Mostly musicals. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Louise Guinaw, you're next. I am just correct you. It's Guinong, Louise Guinong. Sorry. Oh, my I apologies. No, it's okay. It gets messed up all the time. Um, lighting designer, 
uh, coming up on 40 years older than both of the two older than anyone here um but uh lived in stratford and i've been working here a long time off and on uh, and most of my work's been in canada some in the states on all sorts of different stage configurations wonderful thank you for joining us uh michael walton hi i'm michael um Originally from Winnipeg, live in Stratford, Ontario. Um, before we all stopped what we were doing recently, I was in the middle of uh, queuing Chicago for the Stratford Festival and uh, work all over the place. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Uh, Kim Pertel. Hi, I'm Kim. Um, I've been a lighting designer for about 20 years. I live in Toronto. Uh, I grew up just in the suburbs of Toronto. Um, I've had the opportunity to work all over the country and in many countries around the world. Um, and happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you, Kim. And Bonnie Beecher. Hi, I'm Bonnie. I'm 54. I live in Toronto. I've been lighting for 30 years. I do theater opera dance and uh, lots of work in Canada, but I also have a side gig in Germany. So I, get, I do a lot of work in Germany, mostly ballet. Awesome. And Michael Cruz, do you want to introduce yourself at all? Hi there. Sorry. I'm like doing everything at once. Uh, my name is Michael <laughs> Cruz. I am a, uh, I guess, ex-lighting designer now. I can officially say that because now I'm about to be licensed as a physician in Ontario. And uh, I left the business many years ago uh, to pursue a career in paramedicine and then medicine. And uh, I am the host of the Title Block podcast which can be found at uh, thetitleblock.com uh, and on all your uh, streaming services. Um, should we throw it to Kim to give us an update from the ADC on contracts and COVID-19 and stoppages and all that other stuff? Did you want to talk about that before we get into questions and things? Uh, we, we kind of decided as a group, as you were dealing with technical <laughs> difficulties, um, talk about that. <laughs> we decided not to because that's going what happened yesterday is going to be available online um, both as a transcript and video so um, so we're just going to leave it at that then forget I even said it <laughs> we're in a bubble it. of wonderful art making experiences now and uh, I think we can continue with stuff thank you so much Connor for leading the charge great so we've got some questions here that have been submitted by designers across the country. So thank you for everyone who sent in questions. And we'll just go through them one by one, probably not too quick of a pace. And I'll just throw out the questions to the panelists and let them answer at their leisure. And once we've found that a, you know, a question sort of exhausted itself, we'll move on to the next one. And Michael, can people ask follow-up questions in the YouTube chat? Is that a thing we can do? That's a good question. I can't guarantee it. Uh, I'm going to attempt to monitor that. So if uh, you can post a question and if I see it, I will certainly pass it on to the group. I'll yeah, just throw it into, the, into the Zoom chat if you're able to, if something good comes up. Absolutely. But uh, let's start with sort of the beginning of, or near the beginning of a lighting design designer's process with the script. So we have a question of, how do you tackle script analysis? Do you start with a magic sheet or go right to the plot? How do you make color choices? So is that any, all one question? It is all one question. <laughs> I think it's it breaks of... down to starting with the text, though. I think you know, uh, 
I certainly read through. I try and do the first read through without spending a lot of time making notes. And then the next time through, break it down in terms of this location information is here or time of day information or any of the information that is in the script. But also bearing in mind, knowing the director, knowing, having a sense of whether it's a realistic, an abstract, or somewhere in between, and how that impacts all of it. I often, too, I'll read the script without even thinking about the lighting first. I just want to read it and feel it almost. It sounds flaky, but I want to sort of feel what the script is and what the ideas are rather, before I even think about it design-wise. And then... And then talk to the director or set designer and then get a sense of what they're thinking. So I might have a sense of a style that it's in, but I don't really break down the lighting for a while, actually. Um, same here. I do the same thing. I read it without really any notes, just read it straight through. <laughs> Second time, notes, maybe, not even. Usually starts from a discussion with the director, if for me. And set designer, I guess. And if it's some material that I'm unfamiliar with, if it's something that I need to research, I might read something on the side that helps or some kind of visual thing, art or film or some other thing that's close to it. I usually read it the first time, uh, similar to Bonnie and Kevin. I don't make any notes. I just read it for the story um, and uh, see what strikes me. And usually the second time I read it, I draw some pictures, whatever images, whether they... Uh, are going to inform the final design or not. It's just initial images that come to my brain or um, and then start talking to both the director and the set designer just about the story and how we might want to go about telling it. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, just like everybody else, read it a couple of times, the first time without making notes, then the second time really detailed notes about everything so that when I go into the meeting with the director designers I have a really good idea what the script already calls for so you can then see where they're changing their mind and doing things differently from the script also you need to I think look through for things that are not as uh, uh, direct in the script like not just scene three in front of the bank daytime but but references that are in the script things like well, it's late, we have to go to bed. Okay, there's a clue to time of day, you know, just more indirect things. And I tend to go and uh, aside from everything else that re like reading through for comprehension and just for interest, uh, I tend to isolate things that I find need some research. Like if it's a, a time period that I don't know anything about or uh, there's referencing a specific historical character or something, there's usually a, a bit of research I find I want to do before then uh, starting conversations with the director and the design, other designers in the group. And following up on something Kevin Fraser said in terms of uh, location, because some scripts have added information that says a location that doesn't necessarily have to be. You certainly get that in Shakespeare where it says it's in, you know, you'll see some versions of the script they give a location and Shakespeare didn't put any of that in and a lot of playwrights don't but subsequent printed versions of the script have added uh, assumptions that aren't necessarily contained in the actual spoken words. Um, yeah there's something there with the different playwrights like Shaw for instance wrote those right that those were those are his so they're very specific because he never expected anybody to 
ever see it performed as a play. So he really laid out his idea of it in terms of realism or naturalism. Of course, we don't do them that way anymore, but that was his intention. I think O'Neill is like that too, Yeah, really specific. So then after that initial sort of pass of script analysis, you all mentioned then conversations with a director. How do you have design conversations and convey design ideas to a director? I find, uh, yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bonnie. Sure. Go ahead. Um, I find, yeah, I, I, I usually go in kind of open um, with some ideas, um, but questions more than anything about right. what direction they want to go in, what's their thinking about it. Is it, is it abstract? Is it not abstract? And if, it, if my ideas align with them, then it gets into a good jam. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I have completely different ideas, so I really need to be open about um, and not too stuck on my own ideas when I arrive. Um, and then be ready to shift some ideas and go with the flow with what they're talking about. And also will depend on the set, what the set, uh, or maybe we haven't, we don't know what that is. Sometimes you walk in the set's done, sometimes it's not. Lucky if it's not. But um, so I try to go in really with an open mind and asking questions. And then it's usually the next meeting that I'll start to bring other things to the table. I, I would tend to agree with Bonnie um, in terms of how I approach that first meeting. Um, I will uh, inevitably, usually I'll have some visuals in my head simply from reading it. Um, and sometimes I'll offer those up and sometimes I won't. And I would say, um, you know, we can, we can certainly come up with lots of ideas through the design process. Sometimes then you get into rehearsal and the ideas, the concept of how you were going to go about making or telling the story shift and change through rehearsal because how someone decides, you know, what they've decided in a room versus what they executed in the rehearsal hall with actors who have things to bring to the table can shift this, the visual storytelling. And so being able to uh, being able to go with that and being able to shift and have a voice about it as well. But um, I find that there are certain directors, uh, you can storyboard your way through the show and that's what they do. And other times, not so much. So um, having ideas and communicating those ideas and having a great jam session uh, with your collaborators prior to going into rehearsal, I love that. Um, but also being able to be flexible enough as the process shifts and changes with the added performers coming into the room and having ideas of their own, obviously. Yeah, it varies so much director to director because they all have different working processes. And I had one director a long time ago who asked me to draw every lighting look, and I, I can't draw <laughs> anything. So that one totally threw me. Um, we ended up being able to describe it, but uh, it can be anything from extreme detail to really open and explore when you're in the space. So it's so varied depending on. I find that, sorry, Louise, I, did, um, I find that a lot of those early discussions with the director are about everything but the lighting. 
very rarely does it ever touch on the lighting or anything specific. Occasionally, like there's something that's obvious that may, might need to be talked about that has to do with a, a staging idea or something. And the only way that it can be talked about is that, well, the light's going to come from here or one of those kind of things. But generally, it's, it's much more uh, a talk about the piece. Might not even be about the set design. It's just about the piece, the time, the characters, the... Smells like, tastes like, feels like th that kind of thing. Yeah, Kevin, I, I feel exactly like I, I often don't even want to hear about the lighting necessarily in that first meeting. Like I'm super keen on just having uh, the director like download all their thoughts and ideas about everything, and then then just get into a conversation about taste, smells, feels, all of that, and let uh, let the lighting sort of evolve out of future conversations with the rest of the team. Right. Uh, this ties nicely into another question we received, which was, when in the process do you feel the pull towards or the push away from abstraction? Similarly, the pull towards or push away from realism. Um, I, I think it's all abstract. I think the fact that people are coming in and sitting in a row facing in the same direction, watching this thing is abstract to begin with. So I don't know that, um, I don't, um, so I just appreciate abstraction in, in everything in all sort of art forms. And that's kind of becomes a new kind of storytelling thing or, or not. Sometimes it's, you've heard it and seen it before, but, um, I think, uh, I think lighting has that um, capacity to begin as an abstract um, thing. And then people can take from it what they will. But I think, I think for myself, I feel like it's all abstract and I start there and end there. I'm going to pour another drink. Yeah, hard to follow that. <laughs> really? That was good, Kevin. Oh, no. no, that was good. I, uh, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. But the realism has a place in the theater, though. Like, if we're working on plays that are set in specific times and things, like, that's a, there's something there, right? That's where we start. But I don't know. It all feels um, fake. There's, um, there's an openness, you know, there's no set I, I, as you know, Kevin says we, that it's all abstract. There's no set rules, you know, uh, just because right. it says it's nighttime. Does that mean, you know, uh, I feel like it's just about approaching whether it's, you know, w whatever kind of storytelling it is, whether it's linear, whether it's not, um, just uh, being open and helping to create the visual that you need, you know, that has no rules necessarily. And whatever, whatever helps to tell the story, it is a visual yeah. narrative ultimately. So um, abstract can be something like it's a, it's a period piece, but you choose to light it not that way. I mean, that is an abstraction. And so if a direction, if a director will allow you to go that way, where you create lighting that wouldn't necessarily be from that period, that is a very abstract idea. In itself so it, it depends and it really depends also uh, abstract if the director goes in an abstract direction then 
maybe all maybe you can go anyway you don't have to worry about that moonlight being that color coming in from that window maybe it can it can be something else and I don't know about you guys but I've been very influenced by tv these days because the lighting in tv is amazing and very abstract I mean massive big lights coming through windows that are supposed to be time of day but they're not really real looking and I love that kind of stuff and I find that very abstract I think that all that it always looks heightened. You know, there's many yeah. kind of art references that a director might say, look at this uh, photographer or look at this uh, artist's work or something. I feel that when I look at that work, it looks like lighting design to me. Yeah. And it looks like lighting design has always looked. As soon as you apply light um, in this in this way that we do, it, it reveals form in, in, a, in, in an unreal way. So we're always playing with this Sure, it's real, but um, it's not. It's not what you're going to see in a stepping into somebody's room. It's it's always contrived, created, sculpted. We've made choices, whether it's theoretically realistic for a kitchen sink, we've still made choices to enhance or focus the eye. So, but there are some shows where you go to a much further extreme and, and uh, go to what the term abstract is frequently used to define. Something extreme, something isolated, something extremely directional. Um, but, but there's always degrees of that in anything. And Connor, I think, was there something about a moment when uh, there, there might be a moment to abandon. Uh, so I'm wondering if it's the if it's like if there was an initial choice to if it's a kitchen sink play or whatever. There, if there was an initial choice to have uh, soliloquies done in footlights or something, and then you re it's realized amongst the group that that in the moment that what what are we trying to do? That's not making sense. Maybe there's a collective sort of discovery when you feel like no this this play actually needs to feel like we're in a kitchen in the 80s or something leave and the fridge door open yeah need the fridge to open and there needs to be a light inside of it that's a good point because we have there's people who are producing more kind of hyper real like situation not situation like uh environmental or uh very specific right. place-based art right like in an alleyway and it's lit with only practicals Mm -hmm. uh, or even in places like um, the coal mine here in Toronto, where you're in a very small room, you're not using theatrical fixtures, you're using LEDs, or you're just using practicals to light the whole scene. Mm -hmm. um, that is kind of the opposite of, of abstraction. Although Almost taking... like shooting an indie film or something, right? I think that that stuff feels a lot like that. Right. Um, I, I was thinking about, you know, that uh, he comes up occasionally as a reference is the artist Greg Crudson. Do you know who that guy is, the photographer? Yeah. And um, they're very, these very, very heightened, chilling photographs. And um, anyway, that's one of those kind of things when that's brought up as a reference to a show, I always kind of think like, well, that's what we're going to get anyway. Like, <laughs> even if we, <laughs> even if we don't try, it's going to look something like that, you know? Right. Yeah. A sort of semi-related question that I think Michael was touching on a little was, is there ever a point in the process where your concept is impeded by the limitations of the script or staging? 
If so, how do you move past that point and continue serving your design concept? Keep all of the actors on the stage. <laughs> There's that one. It's hard to light under the balcony in the aisle. <laughs> I mean, the uh, truth is, the truth is that your your design should never be in front of the script or the staging. It should be with it or behind it. So your ideas are never the most important thing. So if the lim there's no limitations in a way, you have to do what serves the piece and bring something to it rather than go beyond it. Or it's not about your ideas. It's about your ideas in conjunction with everyone's ideas. That's but so not true. the first player in the team. That's it's right. Uh, and theater is a, a, a live performance is a living, breathing thing that has to have the opportunity and the ability to evolve through the process. So to limit that process to serve any singular idea will squash it, I think. So, um, you know, I, I uh, we have to be elastic. We have to, um, and, and, and if the question is talking about limitations in terms of budget or gear or whatever, I mean, I have a love of limitations. I started my career in the tiniest of the poorest of theaters. Um, and uh, I remember doing my, my uh, second show at the Stratford Festival and Kevin Frazier was doing the um, festival plot in the studio and I was doing a play called The Little Years, and uh, we removed the deck for the first time, and all I had to use were the four moving lights and my 16 lights that I had for my show because the basic was all geared towards the stage. And, and I, you know, any kind of limitations that come into your path, I don't consider them limitations. It's just, this is, this is what you have. This, this is what you have to do the job that you're doing and help be part of the entire creative storytelling, you know? And sometimes I love that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I yeah. agree. Having to create something that doesn't make sense in the space that you're in, it makes it fun. It's, it's, if it's always predictable, there's no excitement. There's no um, expert, there's not the same exploration. Moving on slightly from the conceptual to a little more about the nuts and bolts about uh, lighting design, uh, that first question I'm going to uh, circle back to a little bit that asked, when it's actually time to start drafting, where do you start? Do you start with a magic sheet? Do you start with a lighting plot? Do you start with color choices? What, what sort of order do all of those steps take in the drafting process? I, I start with my script because I take meticulous notes through rehearsal. And so I usually go through the script and look at all the ideas I've come up with through the process. Um, and then I make a list. And usually I need twice as many lights as I have available to me in order to serve that. And it's my least favorite day of the process because it's the day where I say I have to kill the babies. I have to kill some ideas and I have to forget <laughs> they ever existed for me. Uh, because I can't go into tech going, oh, if I only had that other concept. But the process, the reason I hate that day is not about killing the babies. It's about essentializing <laughs> my nice ideas. Term. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but it's essentializing my ideas and making a cohesive palette or a cohesive toy box um, because maybe all the ideas don't actually fit together. So it's the day where I have to sit down and do that. And then I, um, uh, as much as I'm an almost paperless person, I use one piece of paper, I jot it all down and I start getting rid of what, like trying to figure out how to make which ideas actually live in the same world. And then I draft, which includes color choices, et cetera. And magic sheet is later for me. Same. Infanticide, Kim, I think that's what you were talking about. <laughs> It's a whole new outlook on Kim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Way to keep it light. <laughs> Don't want to go to jail for that. Uh, I tend to have a lot of the ideas <clears throat> um, when I'm in my regular life. Before I have to do the plot, when I'm walking or swimming or cooking, I think about the play a lot, and I think about how I'm going to do make the ideas I'm going to make in a very broad way. I don't think about the details yet, and then when I have to do that on the day, much like Kim, I'll make a list of the things I need. How many lamps do I need to do? And I'll make a whole list. And I'm usually a hundred lamps over, 200 lamps over. Then I have to refine, refine, refine. Once I get that down on that list, I'll, I'll put every channel, every color, every detail, every gobo before I put it on the plot. I do it all first. And then putting it on the plot is just an easy task because the decisions are already made. It's good to make a, a, a big list of ideas rather than and have to remove some because if you just automatically assume I don't have enough lights to do that, so I'm not even going to consider it, then you might actually throw out some really good ideas mm -hmm. kind of by accident. So I do much the same thing, make a big list, prune it down. And like Bonnie, just uh, before I start drafting, everything's everything's written down on paper and then go to CAD is just a mechanical process really. I think I do the same thing. Like Kim was saying, it's all in my script somewhere. Like, you know, loose paper is your enemy, you know, so it's all in one place. Um, so it is in that script. It might be on the back of pages. It might be out of order, but I spend some time going through that, picking them all out, making a task list. Like everybody's been saying that task list for me does have little diagrams. So in the end of that process, I could, I don't, but I could snip the, those pages and paste together a rough magic sheet. <laughs> yeah. That's so, the, and that's where my tallies come in. So if there's like nine circles times two, I know that I want, you know, that's a warm and a cool. And if it's got to be cut, it goes to six or whatever. So all of those scribbles, every gesture. So I do like to draw, not like Louise was saying, like not scene by scene or anything like that, but just the gesture of drawing, of making that hand magic sheet, all of those kind of stuff. If something's scribbled out, there's still an idea back in there. And I know what that once was that, oh, wait a minute, that's that's the thing that, that connects to this, that connects to that. So so I still tend to draw a lot, even though it's just graphic drawing. And I tend to spend a lot of time uh, as I'm sort of preparing the drafting and, and getting the drawing set up the way I like it to be set up. I tend to use that time to really get a, a good understanding of the three-dimensional space of the room and of the scenery. And I find once I go through that process, I have a better idea of what I'm capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So like I find, I find ideas kind of come out of that too. Like if, uh, cause it, I, I, 
earlier in my career, I kept getting trapped by having an idea that I, that I found I couldn't realize because the physical space didn't allow for it to happen. And so I, I went to the spending a significant amount of time on my drawing. And then as I'm doing that, ideas are popping into my head or I'm listening to music that's going to be used in the show or I'm, I have something in the background that references the show, clips playing or something. And then I find I'm doing sort of menial tasks of organizing the drawing in a three-dimensional model. But at the same time, I'm gathering, formatting my ideas and gathering my thoughts about what I want to achieve. Great. The next question is one that came in from the live YouTube chat. So that's exciting that we have. Oh, there's one are, person out there. <laughs> yeah, there. Um, do you generally have something to present during preliminary design presentations at first read? If so, what do you choose to share? I often say you will be lit. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> now you're that. supposed to stand. <laughs> um, I always feel a lot of pressure to talk at, at those things, but of course, nothing's been like we were talking about earlier. You don't want to pre-cook anything either. You, you're still at the very beginning of a process. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people will look to the lighting designer for, wow, what's the lighting going to be like? And some of it, you know, but I, I don't know that you want to sort of mm -hmm. um, play all your cards, do you know? Um, so, and if it's a, if it's yeah. a show that you've been in from the beginning, like, where you where the set you've been in from the design from the very beginning, which is rare. But when you get that, then I often have more to say because I've I've been in. But Good if point. if I haven't been in from the beginning, I'm not ready yet to say anything. I usually say something similar to Kim, like there will be light. <laughs> yeah, similar. It's uh, yeah. I, I try to not get myself pinned down in a sense um, because you also so often hit a situation where things go a different direction than, than what the director talked about or in earlier conversations with you. And so I just try and say it's going to support the choices that are made and, and, and go ahead with that. But I, try, I say as little as possible. I guess, ultimately. <laughs> there is supporting the set designer in those moments because I, I think it's got to be a real pressure cooker to sort of like... Um, yeah. So, so sometimes I, I, I try to be involved in that, you know, there's often in a set designers um, presentation, there's opportunities there for light or they'll talk about light. So it, it, you know, elaborating on that kind of thing. But, um, uh, but I, I, I do know that, um, you know, it, it's important. And I think people want to hear from the lighting designer and um, I don't know that that's always the right time to do it. And I find if there's a, like you say, Kevin, uh, if there's a, a significant set electrics element to the to the show that needs a lot further elaboration, then uh, then that's maybe something I would choose to talk about, so people can sort of envision the possibilities of how that could support the sh the production. Mm. We had a couple questions about what it's like to collaborate with set designers um and i'll boil them down i guess to two which is how early do you like to be involved in the development of the set design and what is 
satisfying or inspiring or frustrating and challenging about collaborating with a set designer? I want to be involved from the very beginning, from the very first conversations. I feel like sometimes it's hard to get people together, people's schedules, someone's in 14 hours of tech or whatever. But I want to be part of those initial discussions about the about the play, about the storytelling, um, as opposed to uh, it being presented to me. Um, but, but sometimes that's not always possible. Um, I would say the most frustrating thing uh, is sometimes when the entire process, the entire set design process is basically complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had it. And then where... you're, you're like... I get that idea, but there's, there's not the three feet that I need to do. The, like yeah. you feel horrible, right? Sometimes um, there's that say, large yeah, I, yeah, that this can happen. And I'm like, well, that can happen if we blow at the sidewall of the theater. And you never want to be that person. You never want to, you, you, you know, I always try to turn it around to figure out, well, we can't quite do that. But what if we did something like this? You know, this is slightly different than what you were thinking. It's always, you know, um, important to do that. But being brought in at the very beginning of the process is ideal and something I really try to push for in my collaborations. Please involve me. I'm the same. I, I, and I also find, I mean, the, the one thing, it's not so much about responsibility of the director, but I find the earlier that I'm in, then it's not like I'm an added thing at the end and then they might not like what I'm doing, or it doesn't feel like that. When you come in early, you are building it together from the ground up. And so everyone's, so the the director has responsibility for your work in a way that's different than if you're just tacked in at the end. And also it's, and then you can do all the art ideas. It's just, I find tech way easier for the most part when I'm there earlier, because mm-hmm. it's it's like, it's built from the foundation altogether. You can have a board. Sorry, Michael, go ahead. No, uh, I was just going to say, I feel like, I feel like even in school, uh, we learned that the lighting designer is involved last or, or one of the last collaborators. Uh, and so I think it's been a trend that we've been uh, constantly trying to uh, involve ourselves sooner and get people to want to involve lighting designers sooner in the process, because I think for a long time, it was, uh, we were added in after the fact. Um, we're like, here, here's the production, here's what we're going to do. Uh, and uh, so it's been nice to be uh, involved in changing that um, sort of uh, way of thing, how we do things. And if you can get a voice in early, you can be a voice that can su- support the the direction of the design of what the set designer is hoping to see with their work. Whereas if you come in too late, decisions have been made, but it's, it's also a place where I get frustrated with the theaters, with the production departments and theaters at times, because sometimes I'm wanting to know if there are drawings in, you know, checking in with them and they don't send you anything until everything is complete and theoretically approved. Whereas you've been saying, you know, if you don't necessarily have a direct line to the, well, if you haven't heard anything from the set designer, you don't sometimes even know who the set designer is. And then you're given a complete set of drawings and you go, this is too late. This is, you need to be able to have a voice from early on. And, and we aren't an add on at the end. We are part of the whole visual and, and the whole atmosphere. 
Um, I, I find that those very early discussions when you're involved with everybody before anything started, I'm very conscious of what I say because a set designer has a very different discipline than I do. And I, and I don't want to um, steer that in any way or not even be, it's just my, maybe it's my own thing. It's the way that I feel, but I just, um, it's the, um, I still respect their time in all this, their time with the director, what a director wants to say. I, um, I, I'm there to, to listen, I think, rather than, you know, um, say, oh, this wall should be this tall or any of this kind of <laughs> nonsense. But at the same time, if all of a sudden they're talking about a lot of uh, top light, side light, they're envisioning it, and sometimes using terms such as high side light, but they want to put a whole roof on a closed-in box set. I've certainly been in that situation sure. where by being there, I can say You're, these two things don't play in the same room. Can't have both, yeah. Yeah. And it's true what you say. Sometimes it's just about a listening, even if I'm there just listening. Yeah. I can absorb what the ideas are, which makes my job easier in the end. I had a thing to mention that that just reminded me of. There's a film, um, it was on Netflix for a long time about the painter Gerhard Richter. Did anybody see that? It's called Gerhard Richter Painting. And he, he's a German abstract, well, not abstract expression, anyway, German contemporary artist. And it showed his studio and him working and his works are really abstract. And he has these two assistants that work with him that don't say a word because they know that anything that they can say could send him off for a week down some kind of, you know, freaky trip. And then he'll waste a lot of time. <laughs> so they just kind of like let him do his thing and they're there to mix paint and they're specific with color and they set up canvases and lay out as tools and all this kind of stuff but they're very careful about treading so that they're not influencing his thoughts anyway that's when i anyway <laughs> with the set designer and the director in the room early i'm conscious of that kind of thing i have a question from the chat that is probably uh germane um from Alyssa Horscroft, uh, if you if she says uh, if you get the opportunity to have a design focused workshop ahead of the rehearsal, uh, what do you want out of that process? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that no one wants to answer. <laughs> um, I've, I've worked. Up, I've certainly worked on it on a few of them. I um, not not that many. I don't know how many of those cues that you write end up being the thing. I think that you're just kind of looking for a language. And like we were talking about earlier, it's the, it's the kind of living, um, it's not even a proof of concept. It's just, a, a, it's the first gesture really, but in a very elaborate uh, way. And also it's part of, part of workshop is, again, it's absorbing ideas, but it's also support like part of the gig is supporting the team we all support each other so sometimes you might go to a workshop for a day or two and it's not really doing anything for you you are stucking up some of the ideas but you're there as a support because you're part of the team and that's sometimes the gig as well yeah and it's absorbing the ideas and yeah and then you can percolate on them in a way that you can't if you haven't been part of that whole process Um, I worked on one recently with Why Not, where the content from that was something that was filmed and that they use. Uh, um, and I think that that's been kind of a great success. Like it, 
it wasn't a lot of it wasn't written. It, it was a, a real exploration into what this thing could be. And, um, you know, and so we lit some scenes there, there were, weren't that many, but we stood them up and um, uh, it was in a much smaller venue than the show probably ultimately will be. But um, it was, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And there was no, um, it was just riffing, just flying on instinct moment to moment to what they were doing. And um, I, I, I uh, liked that uh, a lot. Sometimes visual concepts in a workshop are great to explore because often, um, even though I don't speak in technical jargon um, to my uh, collaborators, um, sometimes being able to demonstrate a visual idea or a visual concept um, is really helpful as opposed to sort of just finding finding source material that is kind of that, but not really, and and being able to play with that visual concept and shift and change it in, this, in a similar way that you might do with a model of a set, having the opportunity to play in that way is uh, can be quite interesting, especially if you're doing some sort of concept-driven design, you know? Um, so that's what I, I enjoy about workshops where you actually get to play with light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good time to observe. And I find it's, it's like you were saying, Kim, especially helpful if there's a certain problem that you know you need to solve early that's not necessarily part of the overall concept of the production, but it's just a technical challenge that, like I remember doing a show where we needed to sort of have performers capture a small beams of light with little mirrors and redirect it to another person and then redirect it to another. So there was a bit of exploration with those sort of challenges. Uh, and I find that's a, that's a really good time to prove whether or not this is actually gonna be possible before you get into uh, uh, sticking with the plan that, that supports that idea. There's a question that we've gotten a variation on three times, and it's a simple question, but I think it's one that there is a lot of interest in, and it's just, how do you choose color for a show? Um, people and the set <laughs> is where I start. People for me is the most important. So, um, what people's skin is, um, and, uh, uh, you know, you've got a lot of very a variation of skin color and skin tone and trying to find um, what is going to serve that the best. Um, you can even have, you know, two people of the same skin color beside one another. You know, I could, I could you know, as a, as a Caucasian person, I could stand beside Bonnie, but we're going to look very different in light. I'm very pink and pale. She's much more olivey. Um, and so trying to, I, I deal with skin color first. Then I obviously have to look at the set um, and the floor very specifically because light hits the floor and bounces back up onto the people. Um, and uh, those are the two places I start with for sure. I used to have way more uh, problems with color. Like I used to 
I used to, when I started my career, it was always like, uh, but um, I find I know color better now. Uh, so I kind of know the general idea of the colors that I want to use. If Is it a, is it a very cold environment? So I might know that uh, I, I tend to go cold. So if I have to do things with warm colors, I always find it more challenging. So I might do a broad stroke of color, but sometimes I get in and I'm wrong. And often I don't do the skin tone first. Um, and I sometimes get caught with that. And it's always a little humbling, actually, if I'm, uh, I have people on stage who I've lit them wrong. And so I might have to go through and change the front, front light color or whatever. But I always learn something from that. So I don't stress about color like I used to. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, to Bonnie's point, I, same kind of thing. I used to uh, really kind of stress over it. I think over time, though, it's become a colder world and um, uh, not just with what we do. <laughs> um, um, just watch the news, I guess. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but that has sort of limited a palette as well. And I try to kind of push against it sometimes, but I do find that I'm sort of drawn colder and colder and colder. And it's not my necessarily my own aesthetic, but it um, it's just it works, you know. And like Kim was saying, like it's something the the just slightly off of just playing around daylight um, on skin tone is we're used to it we see it all the time uh it's believable it, it, you can't kind of you can't go wrong with it you're not misrepresenting costumes all of that kind of stuff it's 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 an easy one to do and then it depends on the show that you're that you're working on and um i tend to i just know my own sort of limitations i tend to put any kind of saturated color and stuff from the side and from the back um don't use lavender well it's something that looks good in other people's shows that, that <laughs> sort of thing um and um but yeah it's it, it's not that I, i'm afraid of sort of laying it on from the front but it's got to be very very specific and i'm very conscious of uh of that now but i think my own specific palette has gotten narrower 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 and i think it's i'm either influenced by everybody else or it's it's zeitgeist i'm not, i don't know what it is but it's just where i'm at I think because I started fairly young at Stratford and at that time, the festival stage, the, the basic area rigs were almost entirely open white mm. as a base. And then you had color washes that you laid on top and sort of what we then called the orchestra backs, which were like diagonal back and, and a sort of top light. So I started in that zone and open white was the base for me and then adding color on top of that so for a long time i stayed with that and i you know now started shifting only slightly cool but but staying not far from that and also because open white sometimes was a safety net with skin color because if i had a color range especially before we had as much as many color changing units um, if I had a color that didn't play well on a skin tone, sometimes if I just cut in some open white or really close to open white, uh, it was it was helpful. But I find the slightly cool color corrections and all that, I work well in that. As soon as I go into the slightly warm ones, I get muddy. And like you, Kevin, lavender, I cannot make work. <laughs> I'm not good with pink either. Right? It's not, it's just, I never was a pink girl, but... 
Um, <laughs> it, it's just, I don't, I don't feel like I get the right ones. Half the time I go to cowardly on some of my color choices when I, if I am in a world that needs something towards pink. Uh, and then I counter it by going too far and then end up somewhere in the middle. But it's, it's more of a dance and a color choice than if I'm in cools. Um, it's I love the, using lavender. Was, <laughs> you use it beautifully. Yeah. I, I, it's a disaster for me. Yeah, I'm not good at with it either. It's, I, I, it's like it can be for me. I can use lavender and it can be warm and it can be cool depending absolutely. on what else I'm using with it. And lavender, some lavenders are very muddy. So you have to be careful and stay away from those. But lavenders for me sometimes are a safety because you can light a, as long as you're countering it with something else, you can light a lot of different races, a lot of different skin tones with it. For me, it's worked. Whereas for me, Amber, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> I, I actually try to additive, you know, like, I mean, that's a luxury to be able to do that, to hang a concept twice and to additively mix things. But that, that way I'll push into lavender. But I don't know, for me, I just find it, it, I can't get it. It muddies when it dims which is another limitation of mine that every cue that I've ever written is at least three seconds too long. So I'll throw that out there. <laughs> I was going to say, as someone who's used lavender a lot as well, uh, back when I lit things, uh, I would often color correct if I knew it wasn't going to be at full. If it was a darker show. I would right. just throw 3204, 3208 on it. So you could actually run it at 35% or 40% and have it stay true. That was a Rob 54. Thompson thing. To Rob used to do that. God, I thought cold. he did it. I thought I did it first. You it none of us. None of us have new. done everything. <laughs> nobody's true. done anything new. <laughs> nothing's new. I read an. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. I was just going to say I read an interview with Theron Musser one time, and she said she always chose color for a show first thing in the morning before the first coffee and cigarette. Because <laughs> if she did that, she could get it done in ten minutes. Otherwise, it would take all day. <laughs> That's great. Good it's good to try, like you were saying about uh, warming on dimming, uh, Kevin. Uh, it's good to try and uh, figure out how how intensely you're going to be using certain systems, if depending on what color is in them. So, uh, like it's it's always something I think about. I tend to think about last and right. Oh, uh, I'm only going to glow this idea or whatever. So why am I choosing that color? And then I tend to revise things later on. Uh, but like as as the plot is evolving, I I find I enter three different color values into the fixtures before I'm done. It's it's a very evolving, moving target. Target once I figure out how specifically I'm going to use the rig as well. Also, I was going to say about um, LED. Like everything is LED now. Like everything we see, the TV outside, the way buildings are lit, and so I think in a way our eyes are changing to what we want to see and I think that's changing on stage as well or not maybe what we want to see but we what we know and so I find LED color is sort of changing the way I think about shows as well um it's at first I I had a resistance to the vibrancy of it but I'm starting to understand it better and use it differently and see it differently as well I've had to use an all LED rig a couple of times and I hate that I still want something that cuts through without that that punch of LED. It may be that I just haven't learned how to fully manipulate it, but I feel like I can't get the actors' faces as true in an entirely LED rig as I can 
with traditional fixtures. But that just made me, me not having learned yet. Yeah, I think we I, I agree with you. Of practice, you know. That Go ahead, tungsten, Kevin. The tungsten yeah. warmth, I think, is good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't want to. I'm not fond of all LED. It has its place, but as you say, skin tones, it's really, really tricky, I find. Yeah, it is. You're getting uh, better. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have one more good technical question before we move on to some more general ones. And this is, how much programming do you do before getting into the theater? Do you want to be doing programming in advance? Do you want to build everything from scratch during a level session? How do you approach the programming aspect? Personally, I don't do any programming in advance. I've got ideas in my head as to what it's going to be, but I don't have anything recorded. I create a map for my, I don't do programming. I do bring in color palettes on their fixtures. Like if I've, if I've spent a lot of time with the Lester and I've figured out how to make a color palette of R80, I don't want to redo that every single time. Um, but uh, so I'll bring in color palettes. Sometimes I'll bring in um, a variety of effects that I've made over the years just so I can pull from them and, you know, because I've organized them. But I don't do any programming before. I do create a map. Before I go into levels, I've gone through all the ideas I have in the script. I know where I want cues. I give myself in my description what I want it to do, um, where the cue is going to happen. This is something, it's also the cue sheet that I give to the stage manager so that they can put that information in their book. Um, but it's my map of how to get through levels and tech. I always skip numbers so they don't have 14 points after 26.784238. Um, <laughs> But uh, I learned that early on, especially when you could only have one point. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, but I go in with a map, but I because I don't until my first hour of levels. How is that light falling on that drop, and how does that skim that place, and what what are the level what is complementing each other, and what are the levels at, and you know I just for me I don't I don't program before. I'm the same. I have to learn the rig first. Yeah. But I value the time without the director to explore it and make sure yeah. what I think is going to work is going to work. Um, and some places don't want to give you that time, but I try hard to have it. So I've got some stuff loaded. So when the director first comes in, uh, I've got something to show instead of having them sit there as I'm playing with my the first I just I just tell the director not to come don't I come know. for two hours do not yeah. come I need I need to it's like you watching a costume designer start sketching their first sketch like I need a little bit of time with this to take a look at it so you watching, can sit at the back but <laughs> I don't want to hear your voice yeah watching sausage be made <laughs> I find that um uh, anything that you can do ahead of time with moving lights when no one else is in the room and you get any kind of kick at that yes. ahead of time is very useful because yeah. of course they take time. And the first time you see them, uh, you know, you're not actually focusing the light. Someone else is kind of pointing there and it's never, if you're a real sort of purist and you've been doing this for a long time, it's, it can be a little grating. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of, um, 
good to get some of that stuff, not all of it, but some of it in place, at least to make yourself comfortable that you can, you've got something to go to there rather than create it in the Ke moment. Kevin Fraser, don't you pre-program sometimes? Um, I program a lot of shows, but not pre-program. I do oh, it in the theater over rehearsal. Over oh, I thought you, I don't in, know why I thought that about in you. Not, in non-union situations. Right. Obviously a union situation, you can't really right. do that. But I do yeah. a lot of just sitting in rehearsal and building cues over top. Right. When Kim was saying about prep, I often, um, it's not always a sleepless night anymore, but kind of before levels, you know, it's still like, it's still, um, uh, I don't know. It's low level anxiety, low level yeah, anxiety. It's like you feel it in your gut, you know, yeah. it's like you're starting something new yeah. and it's just, you don't know how it's going to end. And it's um, kind of like when it's going to end. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. I have that moment always of going, Me I don't too. know how to do this. I, 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 you know, I'm starting don't again. have any of the right tools. And especially if you're working with a director that you've never worked with before, um, because you establish a vocabulary when you're working with somebody you're familiar with over the shows, you you know what they mean by blue and they know what you mean by blue. But if it's somebody you've never worked with, that sleeplessness is, is stronger. Because I find, sorry, Louise, I find just the more that I know the show ahead of time, the more that comfort level, the more homework that you can do that, that, uh, reduces that feeling but in terms of pre-programming not physical pre-programming but I've often kind of laid there the night before and thought curtain in upstage yeah, preset has the <laughs> yeah. light through the yeah. window on first yeah. entrances through, from up left all of that kind of stuff until eventually I fall asleep but it's like it's like um how yeah. much of this shit do I know right and yeah, also oh sorry go ahead uh I was gonna say also it also depends on the director if you're leading the process or not, because some directors, you need to lead the process. And especially, I would say, for all of us at our place that we've been doing it for a long time, most of us will lead the process. Um, so that, in a way, it adds more pressure because you need to yes. really present the ideas and you need to be prepared. And some directors, you need to be prepared anyways, but some directors will come in and they want to lead the process. So you also need to be able to give them what they want and be ready for that. So I'm, I'm sort of partly answering Jason Han's question here, which is with the, he's just asking about new directors. Like, how do you deal, deal with that and build trust with that? And I think it's always about leading, having good ideas, but not stepping on their ideas. I, I agree. I think you always have to be prepared to lead the process. You don't say, so what do you want to see next? Like, you have to have your yeah. ideas. Right. And absolutely. be and be amenable to collaboration. It's all about collaboration. So, you know, hopefully you've had lots of chats prior to getting into levels and these aren't new ideas. Um, but yeah. It sometimes feels like you work in an ad agency, though, and you just keep pitching, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um, we've all been there. True. And yeah. I find almost always... Uh, I despise everything I do in the first few hours of the first day. I just hate it. I'm just like, what, what am I doing here? Yeah, me too. Like, is that when you think you're going to get your like lighting design status taken away? Like revoke. everyone's going to know you're a fraud <laughs> yeah. at that point. Because there needs to be certain amount of discovery. You need to what feel, feel the walls vibrating to know yeah. if something is working or not. And I remember... And like without fighting for uh, fighting to remember your channel numbers or whatever. It's just like there's 
you have yeah. to have some time. Um, you get a chance to see combinations of things that you yeah. hadn't even imagined that it was ever going to work that way. Do you know, that's happy all accident. in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Happy accident. Exactly. I had the best happy accident happen once at Berkeley street in Toronto. I had a light on the balcony rail and someone had hit the bottom shutter and it was this, it was this, slash of light sort of on this back wall and it was a set with a ceiling and three walls and everything anyways it got hit in such a perfect way it wasn't the idea I originally had and when I brought the light up in levels I was like why didn't I do like that ladder hit that shutter and it's the perfect thing genius yeah and then you're like oh I'm a total fraud (laughs) (laughs) you were there to recognize that it was good Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And then, yeah. And then going back to color, Connor, uh, I find that there's at least one thing I, I discover that I want to change before, like, before people are looking at this. I'm like, this is, we need to have an hour and we need to go around and change these 12 lamps to a different thing. Uh, and then, and then, then it's until it's what I intended it to be, or until, and, until we discover that we have to go a different route with something. I've also found that um, I would say maybe half of the shows I do, a director doesn't sit in levels. They see it with the people, certainly in the States. Well, there's no such thing as levels in the States. Or in so Britain. that's a different, in the, in, yeah, yeah, you're just working over top mm-hmm. of, but you've mm-hmm. had the discussions and I totally get it. It's like watching a set designer cut the model pieces out. Like, you know, so I'd say at least half the directors I work with do not sit in levels. We've talked through it. And then they'll see it with the people. It's really hard when you're doing, you know, a musical with 40 people on stage or an opera with 60 people or even a play with 10 people. And you have one, maybe two light walkers for your levels. And they're like, what's the light over there? And I'm like, I'm lighting the 14,000 people you have over there. It's just a skim of light. But right now it looks like a lot of light hitting the floor or something, you know. So so uh, I've found that... Um, in those situations, if you talk through it and there's trust and, you know, but there's really fantastic directors that will come and sit through all of levels and really jam with you. And that's also fantastic, but not necessary. Yeah, it's the same not for, essential, I mean. It's the same for me as, as for Kim, about half, probably about half of the people I work with don't come to levels. They just say, make it pretty. Yeah. I find too, with the schedules these days, there are some shows where you have eight hours and you have 200 cues to build. And I have to say to the director, you cannot come to levels or you can come, but you can't talk to me because I will not get it in. And in those situations, I mean, that's not all shows, but you know, those kind of shows where we're doing them more and more actually, where you have 200 cues to put in one day to do it. You've pre-numbered the whole thing, stage manager. So you just have to put your head down and do it. There's no time for conversation. So that's a whole different thing, but, and then they can see it with people. Kevin, I often get on those shows where the director says, make it not pretty. <laughs> so, yeah. Just, like, can you make it look kind of shitty? Exactly, yeah. How dark it's can probably it harder to do. Well, I don't know. Depends on the day. It's like the, the, the uh, visual image is like hair on soap or something for this lighting, you know, that kind of, that kind of approach. Um, I think all of you have worked with assistants, both at one of Stratford or Shaw, if not both. So we had a question that came in what, with, uh, what are some do's and don'ts for assist, for good assistant lighting designers when they're working with you? I certainly want 
Uh, obviously, especially Stratford, Shaw, the COC, they have a job to do that is outside of being our assistants. They, they have work that they have to do that is for the electrician. Um, sometimes work that we would never do as, as, as designers, decide what dimmers are going in what. Um, but I want them, I certainly will have things that I will ask them to do, but I want them to also get something out of the process. Ultimately in Canada, we don't have, it's not like Broadway, we don't have people who make an entire career out of being assistants or associates, you know, and taking shows all over the world and on, on the road. Um, and so I really do want to find out, we often, you know, in, in those places, we're not choosing who those people are. Someone like Kevin Lamont is deciding who those people are. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I want to make sure I want to make sure that they're that they are getting something out of the process that allows for them to grow and they're not just doing all the technical things of making the drawing pretty and making a great magic sheet and you know um, and there are certain things that you know there are certain designers who have their assistant make their cue sheet and update it I, that's something I have it's part of my process and I have to do it it's part of my living document of the design um, but Often, uh, maybe much like a sound designer in a musical, once we start running the show, I want them to move around and I move around to take notes from different places, as long as they understand uh, what it is the design concept is or the design approach is. Um, you know, the updating the paperwork to me is the easy part and um, helping me with, you know, certain things where if I have to have a detailed discussion with a director, I'll be like, okay, just make a quick fire flicker effect, you know? I'll be like, just like eight spikes on the graph and make them like, you know, whatever, and do this kind of, you know. Um, what do other people do? Similar, I mean, I have to, for my own sanity, do my initial cue description. And then, but then I will let them do the upkeep of them through the process. Um, but I need that for, a jumping off point, but I want collaboration. I want their eye. I want to hear from them. Um, but I also want the paperwork to be really clear. Uh, sometimes they're in the theater because they're on shows that are happening simultaneously in the same space. They may know about something that's changed before I do. Uh, and I certainly expect clear communication on that. Um, it's uh, making sure that the electrician knows everything that we know because they're the big sort of guarantee on that. Um, I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I do I do not want to do any of the any like I don't do a cue description. I put I put all the cues in my script, and I when I get to the table, I don't want to look down. I just want to be looking at the stage. So I want the assistant to do all the writing <laughs> and all the note taking. I don't want to have to look at my screen, um, you know, and obviously I have to do that when I don't have an assistant and I'm very bad at it, writing my own cue descriptions all because I just don't want to be taking my eyes off stage. So, so that's what I love about an assistant. And also um, a good assistant, you have to be able to go and have a drink with or go and have lunch with. Like there has to be some fun there too, because if they're too tight, it's not fun. And Sometimes it's a stressful situation, and if they're there with you, you can be in the situation with them, and they're, mm -hmm. they're the quiet 
the, the quiet one who's hearing what's going on, then you're able to go and go, oh, that was stressful or whatever. Um, so there's all kinds of things. I mean, I love having an assistant. If I, especially on a, something like a musical, I will often just see if I can hire someone just to do my cues because I get overwhel- overwhelmed with paperwork and I don't want to have to deal with it. And I find it's like, we uh, we tend to operate in our own little bubbles sometimes, like at our own little table in the back of the theater in the dark and on the same, ch- on a on a channel where we are here, our lighting people and electricians are hearing the same conversation. And I find that I'm, I'm looking for some, a little bit of feedback because sometimes I think I'm going down the right road or, or the really the wrong road. And at the end of the session, the, the directors left already other designers have packed up and left because it's just the end of a work day. And I'm left there thinking, does any of this mean anything? <laughs> and I find that it's helpful to have someone to have a conversation with and to offer their honest, mm-hmm. honest yes. feedback. Yeah. First two hours of stuff you did, Michael, really stunk the room out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It did. <laughs> I think it's important that an assistant knows how to read the room and be sensitive yeah. to what's going on yeah. in rehearsal as yeah, well. Definitely. I've occasionally had people who are not very good at that, and it's it's really awkward, you know. That's a big don't, right? You need to have those kind of antennae to know, yeah. um, you know, pull them down, yeah. <laughs> have them up. It's true. Um, how much yeah, space con- any convers- one of us can take up in the room, yeah. including, in a, you know, how much space yeah. can we take? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I, I find that uh, assistants that I, I use them all the time have for a long time. I assisted when I was a kid as well. So it was part of my training and my experience. So it's just part of what I know. And um, they, um, you know, they make my work a lot better not just a lot like way better than Mm -hmm. I do on my own so I I rely on them heavily and it depends like if it's it depends on the show and what the need is sometimes it might simply be drafting sometimes on a big show with a lot of moving lights yeah I might deal with conventionals and have the assistant um, deal with movers specifically you know um, just so I'm not getting lost in all of it because I I can get lost quite easily and um, so that's a huge help. And um, yeah, I, I just love them. I love having them around uh, um, all of it. I just think that um, I've just benefited greatly from uh, having assistance. And cleaning up stuff in the background, live oh, yeah. moves of things, and oh my God, just all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, because I don't want to be my eye to be distracted from what I'm looking at to be sort of going, do I need to worry about a move that's coming up? I just want to be looking in that sense, same as Bonnie, looking at the stage and not looking at any screens. Yeah. But, but I've certainly had the assistant who has decided to voice their brilliant idea at the <laughs> wrong time. Yeah. And you just yes. throttle them in that moment. Most assistants are great. Uh, and and you do get a bond with them. But every now and then you get one. So and there's that up now. There's also the, um, I, what I like about having assistance now in my career is I get to mentor and that's great. I mean, having someone there witnessing what you're doing, learning from you makes you better at it. And you learn from that as well. It's teaching in a way, even though it's a job in itself. I mean, and I learned everything from assisting. So just watching people work and how they worked, what to do, what not to do. So I'm happy to 
to have assistants to be working with me, but also that they're learning something. It's it's really important when you're young to be able to just get in the room. And I think that it's important for all, all of us and, and, and we all know it, it's important to have somebody in the room with you because it's a, such a rare experience. There's not, there's not many shows. We don't do that many a year, although we think we do. There's, there, it's such a rare opportunity. So I think it's important to just have somebody like-minded around um, yeah. to, to witness it, yeah. good or bad. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all, all good, I guess. <laughs> we have to wrap soon, but there's one question I really want to get to that came in through the chat, which came in from Amber Hood, which was, I'm interested in what everyone is doing, working on at the moment to keep their creative energies flowing. How are you using your imagination in isolation? Well, I was saying to these guys earlier, all I've been doing, all I've wanted to do is bake bread. <laughs> I've, been, I've been on the whole baking bread train, but honestly, it's allowing me to be creative. It's very weird. Um, and that's about that and walking. And, you know, I miss work deeply. I do miss it, but um, it's strangely less stressed in this one part of my brain is much less stressed. I don't have deadlines. I don't have to wake up at a certain time. My kids aren't don't have to get up to school. So there's this much more relaxed part. Um, but I do miss being creative. So yeah, I'm putting right now into baking and cooking. I I like Bonnie miss. I miss work. I miss the people. I miss having creative ideas about something living right in front of us. I have all the appreciation for everything that's happening online, but that shared experience in a theater as you're making something, I miss it. But I'm spending a lot of time walking as well, like Bonnie. Um, I'm spending a lot of time taking a lot of photos and often light has a lot to do with those photos. Um, and I'm really enjoying sort of experiencing the beauty of the outside world and how light engages with the outside world. Um, yeah, like I'll just be walking, I'll be like, Look at how that's kind of skimming the so how that sun going down is skimming the side of that building, you know, stuff like that. Um, but uh, I have hopes of making bread next week. I want Bonnie's hella recipe and I'm going to go for it. I also want to learn how to poach an egg really well, but you know, whatever. I know that one. <laughs> yeah, I've never been one to draw or paint or anything. And I've suddenly... Uh, I'm new to an iPad and I've suddenly gone down this rabbit hole of wanting to draw and paint every day. I love so, your painting. Um, I love them. They're so right. gorgeous. They're gorgeous. Are they freehand paintings? Yeah. They're gorgeous. Well, like pencil. Yeah. Is it on Procreate or what do you yeah. think? Yeah. Yeah. On Procreate. Oh, they're so, so beautiful. A, I find it's a real out like a, as sometimes it's a half an hour thing and other times it's been like from nine o'clock until five o'clock and then I, pack up the work for the day and start making dinner or whatever. But it's, it's a real, it's beautiful. a really good yeah, creative really outlet nice. for me. It's, it helps my brain sort of settle in the current world. Um, Kim, I just wanted to tell you, there's a video. I watch a number of these videos by Jacques Pepin. Do you know who he is? He's the French yeah. chef. So they're, they're all on YouTube, of course, because he had that great show in the nineties on PBS. And um, anyway, there is one about the poached egg. So you see how Jacques <laughs> Pepin does the okay. poached egg, which is poached the best eggs. way to do the poached egg, including getting a whole, like for a restaurant, you can get a dozen of them ready. So I don't know that you can have that many people for breakfast, 
especially not now, but it's just also throw how them to, out my balcony. It's also <laughs> how it's also how to do that so that you can just reheat them quickly. Cool. I'm reading a lot, getting to books that I've been meant to read and haven't had time. Like everybody else, I miss being in the theater, but maybe not as much as I thought I would. Mm -hmm. I <laughs> oh, I miss it more than I would. <laughs> you know, having had most of the last summer off, I got used to it then, but this time I miss it more. I'm walking a lot, sometimes run into Michael Walton on walks. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sewing a lot, but what I'm doing, my only creative thing in the sewing is constantly changing the pattern of the sort of masks I'm doing going. I can make it better. I can make it more efficient. And then going, no, just leave it alone and do what it is. But, um, but no, miss it deeply. Uh, I have an eight-year-old uh, here. So my creativity has, <laughs> has kind of skewed that way. So I've done a lot of, played a lot of Lego almost every day. She's now doing a lot of school as well. So uh, I'm scanning a lot of her work and stuff and sending that off to the teacher. But uh, we also built this incredible um, fort in it. So it's not just like a blanket over anything. She had this little tent that we set up in the bedroom. So there's kind of like three rooms to this fort that wrap around the bed. So it's it's pretty great. And um, uh, some road hockey. Um, <laughs> what other? Anyway, that kind of stuff. So lots of eight-year-old creativity play. Lots of drawings and um, and cards as well. Not creative, but, you know, fun. For, for all of us who are so used to just, like, uh, working 24 hours a day and, like, just, like, getting on the hamster wheel and never getting off, <laughs> it's, like, really, uh, it's, I find that it's, it's uh, intense how great the feeling is sometimes of just being forced to stop and to yeah. connect with yeah. people and to uh, look at your life around you and make sure you're not missing anything that's going passing by. Except for so, the ennui. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah. The rest yeah. of it's good, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. Ending on ennui. Ennui, <laughs> yeah, I know. On that yeah. note. Good. Uh, good play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, thank you ever so much, all of you, for, first of all, uh, agreeing to do this. I think that... One of the advantages of being home, they're not few, they're not a lot, but one of them is that we can all get together like this on a night and we're all not in the middle of the theater or working and able to actually share all these ideas. So I love that part and thank you so much. There are a bunch, there were some questions, a lot of questions that were, were sent to us that we couldn't get to. Don't worry, because I want to be doing this uh, cyclically every Thursday night. Hopefully next week, we'll, it'll either be video or set design, I think next week. We'll sort that out. I think we'll keep the Zoom format. It seems to work well. Thank you for sitting through the first 10 minutes of me panicking on coming up with a new plan to do this in five minutes. Uh, and uh, we'll see everybody. Uh, hopefully you guys will come back and join us. We'll have a, a, another lighting design panel in a few weeks, maybe. Uh, we'll sort that out. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out how the bread is. Exactly. Please bring yeah. samples. And the poached eggs. I'll get yeah, the poached. I'll I'll get you. You can you can put those things in a pack and like uh, you know with some dry ice and you can just send them to my house. <laughs> I would be I be I would like that a lot. Um. All right. Well, thank you ever so much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Thank you, Michael. Bye, everyone. Uh, thank, you all. thank you so much. Have a Bye. good night. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.